todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Stacey Lane Wilson here with my co host, Andy Garrison. Andy is the narrator of several of my audiobooks, including two so far in the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series. Today we are going to talk about those, and we're thrilled to have guitarist and songwriter Waddy Wachtel on the show today. Waddy is known for lending his talents to artists, including Kim Carnes, Linda Ronstadt, The Stones, Keith Richards, and most notably Stevie Nicks to name just a few. Uh, He's currently on tour with Stevie, um, so he's taking a break from his schedule to speak to us. Wadi is also in the documentary film that I made about the Ventures, Stars on Guitars, so that's how I know him. And last but not least, since it is Halloween season right now, you should know that Wadi co-wrote and performs on the excellent Warren Zevon song, Werewolves of London. Thanks for joining me here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Stacey. I'm happy to be here and get to actually talk to you instead of trade a lot of email back and forth, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do collaborate pretty closely on these things, which is really, really important do. for an audiobook, particularly between the author and the narrator, to make sure that things are said the way that I want them to and for your side to make sure that everything flows correctly. Yeah. Um, and you've mostly done, uh, or actually everything you did for me before this was fiction. So this is nonfiction. That's so right. it's really important that pronunciations are correct and stuff. So can you talk <laughs> a little bit about some of those kind of funny? Well, uh, in this latest book. This is Rock and Roll Nightmares, True Stories, Volume 1. Um, I think I think when I, w- there was one chapter I complained about um, all the French uh, place names and and you were, I think your response was, well, how dare Jim Morrison die in Paris? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and because I had to do a lot of those how to pronounce uh, searches, mm-hmm. not speaking French myself. And, uh, and that was a tough one. Um, and 
I think, you know, there were some, um, uh, you know, some musicians that you uh, had to correct me on. I'm trying to remember which one. Uh, there was one that you um, said, no, it's pronounced this way. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. which. I do one remember. I was surprised to find out that who I had always thought was Don McLean was Don McLean. Right. Yeah. I didn't and, know that either for a while, but yeah. And uh, that was, that was, um, that was a surprise, but I got to tell you, um, your writing is so easy to read uh, for me. It's, it's a pleasure because um, I know every audiobook narrator can uh, relate to this. Um, there are, there are too many writers out there that don't know how to write. You know, I'm amazed at, at people that say they're writers that don't use punctuation correctly and don't understand syntax and what tense we're in within a paragraph. And, and um, uh, your writing is just a breeze for me because, um, because it's good. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And, and I love how you always pick up on the, sarcasm because that's one thing <laughs> that I kind of put in there and, and you always pick it up and, and yeah we we kind of share a sarcastic brain don't we <laughs> yes we you do know, it's a scary place to be but somebody's <laughs> got to do it um, that's right yeah no I mean ever since you know we uh, collaborated on the audiobook for uh, I hope collaborated is the right term um uh the tragedy man yes and the uh what was it some reviewer said that uh they called my humor on the read ghost pepper humor <laughs> right exactly and that was that but that was in the writing and uh and if i just if i just uh you know followed the writing um i was going to be okay and i was going to you know it was going to be um it was going to come out the way it was supposed to so um, you know, that was a lot of fun. I also loved, uh, the gory stories, uh, book, mm -hmm. gory days, uh, the 1980s I'm sorry. rock yes. and roll nightmares edition. Yes. That was say that again, really say that, say stories. that again and say the title correctly. Cause right. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah. So rock and roll nightmares, gory days, which is of course a play on Bruce Springsteen's glory days. What? It's place in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah um the of the titles i loved the titles uh in that book one i remember was uh don't stand so close to meet <laughs> right uh, another one <laughs> was was it hip to be scared yes uh and uh you know i i read some of these titles and and they're like oh for heaven's sake stacy and <laughs> right? then and Should then i read the story and it's like yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Say that again. I walked on you. Oh, sharp dressed manslaughter. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Yeah, they really are. And but the stories, they're they do have bite. They're not all just comedic. There is no very bit yeah. of bits in there. Um, but for uh Rock and Roll Nightmares, True Stories Volume One, which is out now, um, yeah. what do you think that people will learn from that book? It's, it's kind of different. It is absolutely different. And um, there, you know, there are so many, you know, it makes you wonder, 
all of the tragedy that happened to our rock and roll icons that have happened to our rock and roll icons, um, you know, what is it about? What's, what is it about creating counterculture music that, and I'll call rock and roll counterculture music because that's, it's supposed to have some subversion to it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that, um, you know, makes people want to party too much, party too hard. And uh, to the point that it's, it's, uh, that it can kill them. Uh, you know, and I know, I know that's not confined to rock and roll by any means, you know. Uh, No, but I think that era too of the 60s and 70s where it was such um, a period of personal revolution, not just in the world, but, you know, people revolting against things and doing the things that they shouldn't be doing. And that, uh, you know, as Mick Jagger said uh, that, you know, we have a quote from him in the book that like, oh, we thought cocaine was healthy. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> they didn't really know back then. They used to put it in Coca-Cola. That's right. Uh, um, the, you know, it's along with that. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the music we listen to in rock and roll puts us in an altered state of mind. And I think that there's times we want to we want to accentuate that. We want to enhance that you know, the, mm-hmm. the altered state of mind we're getting from, you know, dark side of the moon. Um, we want to also relive that at times, I think. And, um, you know, um, when I was in college and, and either in a party, uh, instead of studying or looking for a party, um, music was a huge part of that. And if we didn't have the right, you know, if we, if we were at the wrong party with the wrong music, we weren't going to stay there very long. So. Exactly. Um, and I do feel too, that um, being in an altered state mentally probably did release a lot of inhibitions of the musicians who were writing the music and performing yeah. the music, because yeah. there really hasn't been an era before or since to really equal that as with the advent of the electric guitar and the the substances you know that really just kind of created this perfect alchemy of fantastic music but it has that downside the rock and roll nightmare if you will although i think you do touch on some of the roots of the substance um Mm -hmm. use that happened in the blues and in jazz uh you you cover um uh, Robert Johnson, you know, um, going down to the crossroads and, and what, what his, you know, demise was about. Um, and I thought that was a, that was a really good lead in to, um, the rest of the members of the 27 club. Um, those, those rock and roll musicians that died at the age of 27, um, and uh, it was some something I hadn't realized about Robert Johnson. Um, so, you know, there was uh, one of the things that I like uh, that I like about um, your book is that you'll call, um, oh gosh, somebody from, um, you know, um, from Leonard Skinner, you'll call them the free bird singer or the (laughs) (laughs) well that's my journalistic background coming out well it was always funny to see what you chose (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i did actually yes there are some ironic 
song titles that go with these stories that will, you know, depending on your darkness uh, sense of humor, <laughs> you will either be laughing or you'll be rolling your eyes. But then there's more to come in, in volume two, which I'm about 75% through okay. writing. So yeah. um, yes, rock and roll fans can look forward to your reading that one as well, probably mm, in uh, early yeah. next year. You indicated that you had just spent a whole day researching a story for that. Yes. Can you let us know a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I did. Actually, I, uh, well, the Altamont, of course, is a story with yeah. the Rolling Stones and the Hells Angels doing security for their concert, which turned out horribly wrong. And that whole chapter is called Stage Fright, and it covers everything oh, wow. from stories like that of bad things happening to the audience to bad things happening to the musicians on stage mm -hmm. um you know i mean we had uh les harvey from stone the crows he electrocuted himself on stage and Whoa. died in front of everybody uh, um you know just some really shocking <laughs> stories uh, if i may right. say but uh, yeah, and then also there's like a lot of people don't know that or remember that in 1976, ZZ Top took an entire Texas animal menagerie on tour with them. So they had on stage through this tour that they were traveling with a buffalo, longhorn steer, rattlesnakes, buzzards. And, you know, it's like, gee, what could possibly go wrong? Like <laughs> so, you do. <laughs> yeah, so, so stage fright just covers a lot of different crazy mishaps that happened on stage and some are funny some are tragic but I mean uh, I think that's kind of what um these books uh kind of they all bring together like it's yeah. it really is a love letter it's not all the downside so yeah. I feel like yeah. it's a love letter to rock music and um happy that you're my partner on these well it's a pleasure for me too and um and uh you know I, I'm looking forward to reading the new one yeah well, and I'm enjoying and I'm enjoying um, telling people to listen to the current one. So, yes, it's out ahead. now uh, exclusively with audible.com. Great. And, you know, who's not in rock and roll nightmares is Wadi Wachtel, our guest today. So should we bring him on? Yes, let's do. I can't wait to talk to him. All right. Welcome to the show, Wadi. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to get into um, this new documentary that you have out, um, Immediate Family. What can you tell us about that? Uh, Denny Tedesco approached us because I think he believed we were the follow-up act to The Wrecking Crew, which was an incredible film about these amazing guys. But uh, he took it one step further at a band like us when we, because we became a band. And also we, aside from doing studio work, our, our participation in the music business was not just the studio because it was, thank goodness for Peter Asher was the one who started saying, I want you guys to go on the road because I want these songs to sound exactly like they do on the record. So when we go out with James or we out with Linda, the same band that played the record is out on stage with them, and it was a great idea. But the Wrecking Crew guys, they never left town. They were, you know, at those days, you were afraid if you left town, you're, someone would take your seat and you're gone. <laughs> that uh, makes sense. We, yeah, we were fortunate enough to be able to leave town, come back, and still be booked to do sessions. We were doing lots and lots of dates, and uh, it was an incredible period. 
and Danny picked up on it and uh, approached us about it, and we were just in love with it. I, I wanted to say that it, the film, even though it's about the the four, the five of us, the four of us really, and Steve Postel, who's new boy, he's only been he's we've only known him for about you know twenty years. We've known each <laughs> other, you know, we've been playing together for fifty years. Uh, but it's aside from Danny, Leland, Russell, and myself. To us, it's a, about every other great studio musician we've had the pleasure and honor to work with in all these years, from Jim Keltner through Billy Payne, through Andrew Gold, through Kenny Edwards, through David Lindley, all the guys, David Page, all the guys in Toto. You know, these are our brothers, every one of them. You know, so it's it, it's an honor for us to be the subject of it, but it's it's an honor to be part of this incredible assemblage of amazing musicians that have been with us through this whole period. Wow. Well, I love the Wrecking Crew documentary, so I'm really looking forward to this one too, Immediate Family. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty good. It was, uh, <laughs> it's, it was really, really wild to see a film about you. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, it was really something. We were touched. Touched laughing, uh, very moved by it and uh, honored. It seems like, uh, Wadi, you've worked with everybody. And I discovered you from, you know, Warren Zevon's albums. And then I discovered much later than that, that I had been listening to you for years before that <laughs> <laughs> with Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown. And, and it seems like you've worked with everybody. Um, and <laughs> yeah, who haven't you played with? And maybe a better question is, who haven't you played with that you'd like to, uh, if you want to call anybody out? There's uh, there's uh, several people I'm sure I could think of, but I mean, I could I would say I've never gotten to play with Paul McCartney. Uh, I've, ha I've had the distinct pleasure to work with Ringo a couple of times. Yeah, and uh, and Danny Danny played with John Lennon, mm -hmm. and I've gotten to work with Bob Dylan, but. Uh, it, it's been an amazing ride. Let me put it that way. It's, it's, yeah. I, I, I sit back sometimes and go, you know, actually I'll sit there, I'll be in my studio working on something and I'll look at my pick and I'll go, this is all from you. All of this came from holding this pick in my hand. Wow. You know, I started playing, I started playing when I was nine years old and, uh, yeah. real, and I knew that was all I wanted ever to do. And, in 1968, I moved to Los Angeles with a band that, unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, never got anywhere. Yeah. And decided I could, I met some studio musicians and I went, you know, I think I could do that job. And I was I given the opportunity to do it and I came through uh, each time. Uh, I was really blessed and lucky to have the, the chance to do it. But uh, Paul but McCartney, I've never met Paul. I would love yeah. to. You guys are absolutely rock and roll history, but kind of in stealth mode, because uh, I think I think I read an interview where uh, it was only later that they started adding, you know, to the to the album credits who was playing on the album. And um, um, I, yeah, again, that was a that was a completely on Peter Asher. Peter Asher is the one who was the first one to do that. He said, I want the musicians' names on these records. That's great. And uh, we were, uh, you know, so lucky to be working with Peter. And again, Danny, Leland, and Russell were working with Peter years before I got 
to meet him and work with him. Right. But Peter was the one responsible for all credits on all albums started by Peter saying, this is how it should be. Wow, that's great. So glad he did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was on when Johnny strikes up the band on Warren Zevon's Excitable Boy album. I hope I'm getting that album right. Uh, that I heard... I heard that guitar, uh, that guitar lick, and I was like, "Who is that guy?" You know, <laughs> and uh, that's when I first saw the name, you know, Waddy Wachtel, and I've been looking out for you since. So, no, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I mean, it's 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 a it's a privilege to get to talk to you today. So, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. very sweet. Well, Waddy, I. Uh may have mentioned to you that I was reading a book about Stevie Nicks and found out a lot more about you uh, through that. And um, <laughs> yeah, so I know that you've been recording with her for quite a while. And I did actually see you on stage with her quite a few times in the mm. 80s and 90s. Um, but I was surprised to learn that you were on that uh, Buckingham Nicks album, which uh, for those who Definitely. don't know, but yeah, set Stevie and Lindsay onto their path into Fleetwood Mac. Um, so how did you first meet them and what was it like making that album? The uh, the reason that happened was the late, beautiful, dear friend of ours, Keith Olson, who was this fantastic producer. Uh, he met me. He had, he had a partner named Kurt Betcher. Yeah. Kurt and Keith, they had a band called The Millennium. This is a long time ago. This is like late 60s. And it was a California act that never really sold a lot, but it was an incredibly advanced musical experience very very hip uh and they through a friend of mine i was introduced to kurt and keith and they heard our band um and they really liked the band and they took us in the studio we went in the studio with them and we tried to do some records but eventually as it went on uh the band was uh losing its way let's put it that way and i decided i needed to to get away from the band i had to i had to break up the band because it wasn't going to happen mm -hmm. and keith and i became very good friends and worked a lot together i was i had a, a deal aside from doing he put me on a lot of sessions uh but i was working on my own record deal and i had a a singles deal so keith and i were working on that and one night he said to me i'm bringing this couple down from uh, Northern California um, named Lindsay and Stevie. Uh, he says, you'll really like them. They're great singers, really great songwriters. And he says, and the guy's a really great guitar player. He says, but he doesn't know how to play with anyone else. He does his own thing. He, he makes his own demos. He, he doesn't know how to interact with another guitar player. So oh, you, wow. gotta, you gotta be there. You gotta play with these guys. And I said, okay, fine. And then uh, we met. And we all loved each other and uh, spent a lot of time sitting on the floor at Lindsay's house, watching Stevie just watch us sitting on the floor. Stevie, <laughs> was, Stevie at that point was being a wait, was a waitress. You know, she'd come home, we'd be hanging around trying to come up with some music. Uh, uh, but we were all really tight. And we went in the studio and cut their album. And the great Ronnie Tut played drums on some of it. I think Jimmy Keltner played on some of it. And uh, it was in a beautiful experience, but that's how we met. And on it was funny because on my single, a single that, that never really got anywhere, 
called You're the One. I had Stevie Lindsay and myself singing these rock and roll, shouting these background parts together. And it was so funny because Stevie, she has a, aside from her beautifulness of her voice, she can really project that voice as loud. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget, we were trying to do these three-part backgrounds and Keith is in the booth. This is at Sound City. Remember that old studio? Uh, yeah. And so we're at the microphone and we, we go to do the, you're the one that's just this chorus singing. You're the one, the three part. And, Steve, and Keith goes, uh, Stevie, could you back up a little? Okay, let's try it again. <laughs> she was back. literally, she was literally across the room <laughs> when we got the one we needed because she's so loud and it was just fantastic. Wow. But uh, that's how we met. So we met, I think it was 1970 or 71 at the latest where we oh did that goodness. record. Wow. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then, a great record. Uh, um, yeah. Just listen yeah, to it again, you this, know, so. just the Lindsay, uh, the Buckingham Knicks album, just, you know, listened to it a couple weeks ago. Just oh, you know, I've heard it for a long time, but it still holds up so beautifully. It does. And it's funny. There was one song, there's a song on it called Crying in the Night that was. Uh, an album cut that they said they wanted to do it up as a single. Huh. So Keith called me and said, you got to come out here. We need to put electric guitars all over this thing. So I put electric rhythm on it. I played slide. It started mm -hmm. to sound more like a Badfinger record. You know, it had really got a good. It was really cool. The, the remix of the single huh. was very good. And we put it in Stevie's show, actually. Uh, we're not doing it right now, but in her album that came out of our last tour, the 24 Karat Gold Tour, uh, it's on that album, Crying in the Night. It's a really good song of Stevie's. Ah, oh, good to know. And, uh, I will listen to that. And uh, yeah. you know, like you said, you're taking a break. Uh, you're on tour with Stevie right now. And I'm wondering, yeah. like, to what do you attribute your long working relationship with her? Because it's been like 50 years, which is hard <laughs> to even fathom. Where do, you know, well, we're, we're just very, very unified together on stage. We both know what the other needs do i know how to run a band i know how to look out for her i know i just we're, we're just a good team on stage you know it's we're not mick and keith but uh we have our <laughs> we have our magic and stevie is magical on her own so she doesn't need that much help but i can lead the band for her and i can tell whenever whenever there's something needed i'm right there to make sure she gets it done and stuff like that and uh and we have a great time doing what we do together you know, we uh, we we don't we've we've not bumped into each other once on stage yet. Wow, you know? I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. You produced as um, it, you talking about you know running a band for Stevie. Um, Nix has uh, reminded me of the question that you've produced uh, so many albums, as well as played on them, and and. What's your secret as a producer? If there were one or two things that you were to say, this is what a, a producer needs to do, especially anybody that's going to, you know, put their own, you know, playing on the album. What what would you recommend to other producers out there? Well, first of all, you know, you you hire the right musician for the song. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I always felt most of the time. And I felt I was that musician, so it was a little easier decision. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, in the case of, like, for example, Jackson Brown brought me on board for Warren's Yvonne's Excitable Boy record. Yeah. Warren and I 
Ward and I were, were very tight. We we played for the Everly Brothers together in the seventies. Oh wow! And that that's where we met. And uh, so by the time Warren did his first album that Jackson produced, I was playing on that album. I wasn't producing it. Jackson produced it. But by the second one, he called me and said, I need you to help me do this next record with him. I went, I said, you don't even know me. <laughs> said, but you hardly know me. He goes, yeah, I know you. But he says, I'm at a place here where Warren, Warren's not ready to listen to me much anymore. And he's not going to listen to you much anymore after this album. Uh, but I think the two of us together, we can get, get him to do what we want and produce this record. So I was beyond belief honored that Jackson Brown would ask me to do that. And um, pretty much that was my first real production. I did a few things prior to that, but uh, that one. Do you know what what he thought you'd be able to do with Warren on that album? Well, Warren and I, like I said, Warren and I were very tight. So my role more was, uh, aside from production, uh, was, was the arranging the bands. I, I'm, Again, I, I'm I'm a I'm a decent band leader, so when it came to these songs, which I knew so well, I was able to, to I knew how to put the bands together. Yeah, I I knew who who would be the right guy to call, um, and I knew the I knew how to arrange those songs, yeah, and that was a lot of the reason I was there, but it, but it was funny because uh, Werewolves of London, which seems like one of the easiest songs in the world. Uh-huh. And I, I've told this story before, but Werewolves of London was the hardest song to get recorded ever. Wow. It wow. took every band that I knew that from, you know, we had like on Johnny Strikes Up the Band, it's Russell and Leland. On Excitable Boy, it's Russell and Bob Glob. Uh, uh, on other songs, it's Michael Botts. It's this. It's, I knew who to call. Mm-hmm. So when it came to werewolves, we tried it with Russell and Bob, didn't work. Tried <laughs> it with Russell and Leland, didn't work. Tried it with Jeff Picaro and Leland, didn't work. Tried it with Jeff and Bob, didn't work. Tried it with Michael Botts, tried it with Rick Schlosser, tried every, <laughs> every mm. drummer and bass player. I knew, and, and it kept being okay. And Jackson would go, that's that's good. That sounds pretty good. Warren and I were going. That's not it. <laughs> that ain't that ain't it. It sounds it sounds cute. It sounds funny. It can't sound funny. Huh. The jokes ain't gonna work if the band sounds cute. Yeah, it can't sound cute. So, our dear friend Jorge Calderon, who was with us all the time, he looked at me, and by then Stevie and Lindsay were with Fleetwood. Years had been with them for years already. So. Jorge said, well, what about Mick and John from Fleetwood? I went, oh, man, those guys, uh, they could lay this down fat and hard and serious. So I called Mick, and and it was so funny. He goes, you want you want us to come play with you? We're, we're, we're honored. I said, you're honored? Well, well, we're honored that you guys want to come, so why don't you just come? Please get over here wow. and help us out. So they came and we spent the entire night cutting this track. We went from take one, take two came by, Jackson went, and the band was literally Warren, myself, Mick, and John out in the studio. And take two went by and Jackson said, Waddy, that was pretty good. You want to hear it? 
and I went, uh, and Mick Fleetwood goes, nah, 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 let's just keep going, let's keep going. But uh, okay, we'll keep going. So we kept going, all right. We kept going until about take 60. Oh, and yeah. uh, finally, <laughs> I said to Jackson, I said, um, Jackson, didn't you say take two was pretty good? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, you want to hear it? I went, yeah, I want to hear it. And at one point, I looked at Mick around, around say, take 50 or so. And I went, man, I think we're done. And Mick Fleetwood just looked at me and goes, we're never done, Waddy. <laughs> I went, oh, okay, we're never done. All right, fine, let's keep going. So we did a few more, a few more. And and I said, Jackson, didn't you say take two was good? He goes, yeah, you want to hear it? I went, yes, I want to hear it. Come on, let's go in the fucking studio and hear it. And uh, oh, you can take that word out if you need to. But um, <laughs> um, so, so we went in and listened to it. It was great. I looked at Mick and went, Mick, we're done. <laughs> that's hysterical. That's the take, man. Oh fucking God. take two. Fucking take two was the one, and uh, <laughs> it was it was great. It was just great. It is still an immortal song, so yeah. Oh, thank you guys you. were right. Um, and I, I'll tell you another funny facet of it. Uh-huh. We we got it done. Um, I think Warren and I did worked on his vocal, and that's another thing about production my not gift but one of the things i'm aware of is it's so very important that your artist feels comfortable in the studio mm. you have to that's the producer's job aside from getting the music together mm-hmm. and getting everything else around them together you have to make that person feel great you have to make them feel like singing because otherwise you're not going to get the vocal you need if they're not giving it to you because you're not making them as comfortable as they need to be you're never going to get the vocal. So I was always aware of that from from watching Peter Asher, from watching all these other producers I'd worked for. I realized the difference between the good ones and the bad ones were that the artists felt great about mm. going out and singing. So we did the vocal, and, and I said, okay, now it's time for the solo bit. Oh, boy, i got to come up with a solo for this. Um, all right, you guys might as well split. This is going to take a while. Um, so they left, and I sat down in the booth next to the engineer, and I rolled myself a joint, poured myself a drink, put my cigarettes on the table, lit up a cigarette, um, said, um, okay, I guess I'm ready. Uh, I put the slide on. I said, I think I might need a slide. Uh, hit play. So he hit play, hit record. I laid down one track. I heard it back. I went, that's pretty good. Um, I think I needed a, I need a harmony. Give me another track. He can roll it again. Huh. So he gave me another track. Put the harmony part on. I listened back to it. And I went, it's done. That's it. So I called Jackson. I said, Jackson, you guys better come back. He goes, I just got home. Oh. <laughs> said, yeah, well, I think it's done. He says, what? It's done? I said, yeah, come on back. So they came back and we heard it and we all had a ball and uh, it was great. Wow, that is pretty great. I never, Um, I never even lit, never even lit, lit, never even took a sip of the drink. Oh, you didn't! Wow, that's really diving. (laughs) No, I never, you know. (laughs) No, I just said hit play. Oh, oh, that's good. Okay, hit it again. Okay, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) Was lucky. 
Well, you, you might have sort of answered my next question already, but one thing that I did want to know is like a word that keeps coming up when anyone talks about you that's worked with you is that you're very perceptive. So would you say that that's a natural gift that you have or a skill that you developed? Well, I, I thank everyone or anyone who's ever said that about me. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, what I know is this. I know that most of the time, if I hear something, if I hear a song, I can hear what I think it needs. And fortunately, a lot of the time, that's what the song does need. But it's just, that's all it is. It's just, I hear a piece of music. You see, our, our, our world, studio musicians world is built on counterpoint. Everything that I do is counterpoint to the melody. The melody is what matters. The song, the singer and the song are the whole deal the track has to be good enough to support that song and the singer's vocal but when i hear it i i hear what isn't there you know what i mean i hear what mm -hmm. well oh this lick could fit right here you know this would be a good spot for a lick to go right here and that's what i do so i mean rhythm wise i'm i'm a i'm a pretty pretty good rhythm player so i can i can find a good rhythm part for songs but it's that it's that counterpoint of finding an alternate melody that, that to bridge the gap in between the spaces in a in a song, yeah. And that's that's what I perceive as like what they're talking of, about of artistry, like how a painter knows where to put certain things on a canvas, and that's kind of sounds yeah. like what you're talking. Yeah, about. yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah, I but I've been really telling somebody that I remember you telling somebody that um, gosh, you had just finished the session they ran into you at a bar you were having a beer and uh oh it was for um betty davis eyes with kim carnes and um they said i need you to come and and play on this and you're like i just finished a day work a day's worth yeah. of sessions and you heard the right. song you go oh i'm gonna put the eights on that yeah and can you yeah, explain yeah. what that means i don't know what that means to put the eights down well, it's like uh, eighth notes are. Uh, okay. You know what eighth I, notes are. Sure. And yeah. uh, and for uh, one function of rhythm guitar is to do what we used to call chucking, where you're it's all downstroke. Like it's yeah, it comes with surfing music, chucking okay. along, chuck, mm -hmm. chuck, chuck. and yeah. and it was actually, I, I I had stopped at record one, on my way home from being in Hollywood, and I had done like three sessions that day and i was i would always stop a record when i was on my way home and get a drink yeah. <laughs> stop in my i used to call my my favorite bar on the way home was record one and i'd stopped in there and val Garay was producing kim and betty davis eyes and it came over to me he goes oh man i'm so glad you're here I, josh leo who is a wonderful guitar player and a great producer lives in nashville josh was sick that night he couldn't make the date and Val said, I need, I need the rhythm part on this. I need a rhythm part on this song. I went, oh, what? Really? Do I got to work? I don't want to work, but uh, <laughs> let me hear it. And the great thing was everything that you hear on that record is live. That record, the performance, oh Kim's vocal, every, every instrument, every note that you hear on that record went down when we cut it. Um, wow. There's no overdubs on it whatsoever. And so I came in and I heard it. And I said, oh, I'm going to play eighths through this thing. So I just played, you know, a nice on a telecaster, just played eighth notes all the way through it, wow. keeping the rhythm, sitting with the drummer. It's like 
it's not unlike the drummer's right hand is playing the hi-hat, you know. That's what the eighth notes are. That's the eighth notes. And my one of my, I don't know, skills or talents is I'm very good at playing those eighth notes with drummers. I love doing that, generating that rhythm. And so that's what I did. And then at the end of the song, there's this, somebody asked Warren Zevon one day, they said, what's that? What's that sound at the end where it sounds like a dog barking or something? That June, 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 what is that? And they said, that's Waddy's hands. Because at the end of the song, you know, there was this open space where the eighth notes had to stop. And I'm thinking, God, I got to do something here. <laughs> so I just threw that into it. Bow, 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 bow. And then back to the eighths. And uh, it said, yeah, that, that's Waddy Wachtel's hands. Really wow. Who knew? But, but it was fantastic because we came in to, to hear it. And as we walked into the booth, I grabbed Val Gray and I said, I just want you to know this is a smash hit record. Huh. What we just did is unbelievable, Val. This is amazing. And we heard it all back. We all looking at each other like, well, that's we can't ever be better than that. Huh. So that was it. And it was a, a take. We did a few takes, perhaps, but that take was as magical as the record sounds. Yeah. That's so cool. I kind of like to um, go back to, you know, there's, it seems like you fill so many different functions in music um, where, I mean, you're absolutely not just a guitar player. You're not just a producer, but you, uh, you know, you manage a band, you, um, I don't know if manage is the right word or what. Uh, you know. I, 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 band, the musical director for Steve. Yeah. Man. Yeah. You, you, yeah. and it reminds me, you know, of what I do. I'm an actor. I'm a director. I coach actors. I edit video. I edit sound. And I wonder if you feel the same way I do. And if you don't, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, if you feel the same way I do, that it's all the same work. You know, that, you're, that, that you are taking the, taking the melody, as you mentioned, the, the singer and their song, and you are um, doing everything you can to support that. Yes. And it all becomes kind of the same work, as long as you keep that in mind. Do you agree with that? Well, basically, yeah. I mean, you know, when, you, when I'm brought into a session, I'm either hired as a musician or if I'm brought in as a producer, that's a different situation. But, sure. but sure. nonetheless, I, I learned through the years, of, again, working with Peter, and Lou Adler and, and Richard Perry and stuff. These people, like in the old days, you walked in, they handed you a, a chart. Yeah. You sat down, you shut your mouth, you read that chart. Uh-huh. You know, you didn't really come up with yeah. stuff. Um, but although if you saw the movie, did you see the movie Muscle Shoals? Yeah. You I see have, that I film? Mm-hmm. I have not. Uh, about, and that scene with Aretha Franklin where, where, they the, her first single I never met never loved a man the way I love you, where they sent Aretha down to Muscle Shoals with his white band, you know, and she said, "What am I doing down here with these guys?" Uh. And and they couldn't come up with anything to get this song done for days. They sat around, going, "This is just not going to happen." And Spooner Oldham, the great Spooner Oldham keyboard player all of a sudden came up with that main lick that you hear that starts the song off. And he brought that lick to the record. And without that, that record still never would have happened. You know what I mean? So it's down to 
when you're in the studio, who comes up with what? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's very hard to define that really. Um, with Stevie, uh, her song Edge of 17, she kind of based it off of, there was a song by the police that had that kind of a feel to it where Andy Summers was doing that role the eight, that ticket 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 sound, but he was doing it with an echo chamber, or doing it with an echo pedal, hmm. and the drum beat was kind of similar. And Stevie will she will lower stuff enough to where she can't hear the singing, and she'll just hear a groove and love it, and she'll write an entire original composition to to that groove. Um, so when we we're in the studio for that, I heard the demo, and I just went, "Well, I'm not going to do that," you know. Uh, I'm not gonna do that. I don't, I don't use pedals. I don't use any effects, really. Huh. I just plug into an amp and play. Is how I go. So I told Jimmy Iveen. I said, "Well, that's cool, but I'm not gonna do that." He goes, "What do you mean you're not gonna do that? What are you gonna do?" I said, "I'm just gonna play that." And I just showed. I went out to my guitar and just went take 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 with my guitar, just playing it. I didn't realize I was trapping myself into. One of the most physically demanding <laughs> guitar parts ever invented. That is so because funny. Stage, I, I had read Lindsey Buckingham, like he refused to play Edge of Seventeen because it was just too hard. <laughs> is that right? Did he yeah. say? <laughs> That's funny. Well, we used to, and when we used to go on the road a while ago, I mean, it's still a long tune, but it used to be seventeen minutes long. I mean, it used to be like nine minutes before she'd even come out on stage. I'd oh, be like, my, my hand would be. So I used to tell people I could break walnuts open with my right hand by the time we went on the tours. It's so strong, but it's it, it, each song is its own case. Every song yeah. is a, is an individual patient. You know what I mean? And you sure. you need to find what's what's good for it, whether you're producing or whether you're perform whether you're accompanying. Yeah. So it's it's down to each each tune is a special victim or. Yeah. Patient, patient, not a victim. <laughs> a patient. Whatever works. Yeah. Uh, As I mentioned, you're on tour with Stevie now. Um, so where yeah. can people find tour dates and get tickets and whatnot? Oh, I would imagine everywhere, you know, but uh, go to Stevie Nicks's website. You find him there. I'm sure you go to any of the ticket selling websites. Um, where, we're winding down. Right now we're in Florida. We're in. Uh, we're going to play Tampa tomorrow, uh -huh. and then we're playing West Palm West Palm Beach uh, a couple days later, and then we are, and then we're playing Halloween night in Alabama, which ought to be quite an event. Wow, uh, that sounds different. Yeah, that's going to be something. And then we're going to do uh, a makeup tour for Houston, and a makeup tour for uh, Phoenix. We had to take a break for a while. Stevie's throat was needed a rest, so we had to take, we had to miss those two shows. But we rescheduled them, and they'll be uh, at the beginning of November. And then I come home, and then the immediate family is going to be working uh, at home. Uh, we're going to do about eight or nine gigs at home with my band. Nice. Well, uh, are you going to tour with the immediate family? Well, we're we're playing West Coast right now. We're going to be doing a bunch of stuff on the West Coast. Uh, we're trying to time everything for the album to come out, for the documentary to come out. Sure. So we have a brand new album that we just finished, um, and uh, I just downloaded it. I've out. been I've been listening to it. Yeah. Not not the new one. You haven't. Oh oh. Okay. <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad you got the other one. I hope yeah. you like. 
I love it. Yeah. yeah it's great. Oh, well, thank you very much. I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. But we, we, have, we have a brand new one. We have uh, a 14th song record that we're really proud of. That's going nice. to be mind blowing. I hope to everybody. And uh, we have a single coming out this Friday, uh, a song called the toughest girl in town, which is actually uh, the only cover song we're, we're ever doing. Um, aside from like when we, when we perform, I perform Werewolves of London because I, I I wrote that with Warren, so that feels uh -huh. like an original. But I also do Lawyers, Guns, and Money because it's a really popular, great Warren tune. And I, you know, yeah. since I was heavily yeah. involved in it, it sounds like it'd be simple to play, but it's harder than it sounds. Well, that you know, you can say that about a lot of songs, really. True, but uh, you know, it's funny, Warren. When we did Excitable Boy we got to a point during the record where there were two songs on the record that I didn't love. Um, I loved all the other ones, but these two, I, I, I wasn't involved in the recording of these other two songs. They had been done already, but I didn't feel they met up to everything else we had done. Huh. So I kept telling Warren and Jackson that, and they kept saying, no, 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 it's great. I'm going, Oh, okay. It's great. Is it? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, we had a playback party and side one of that record was the way side one came out all these great tunes in a row side two had these other two songs on it and by the end of this end of this playback party the room was kind of empty and i said okay all right you see what i mean <laughs> come here boys we gotta talk and i and it was so great i said i'm leaving town tomorrow with linda i'm gonna be gone for two weeks Warren, I need two new songs from you. We got to have two new songs. Mm. He goes, okay, okay. And I came back to town, called him up. I said, how are we doing? He goes, I got him. I said, you got him? He goes, yep. I said, I'm coming over. I come over. Not only did he have Lawyers, Guns, and Money, that was one of the brand new songs. Wow. <clears throat> the other one was a song that he and I cherish called Tenderness on the Block. Oh. Which I, I love that song. Yeah. And those were the two new songs. And I was so happy. And and also, I had just been on the road with Linda, with Rick Morata, who's an incredible, incredible drummer, and Kenny Edwards, who was the, the band for Linda. So I said, well, let's go. And I called Rick and Kenny. I said, can you guys be at the studio tomorrow at 11? He said, yep. So we went and we cut both those songs in one afternoon. Oh. And... Uh, we just couldn't have been happier and lawyers came out great but lawyers is just straight that was warren's piano part the chords sure and uh there's just a little lead part on it and there's a there's a few little wise guy lead guitar bits in it i guess but yeah. uh i don't know it's uh -huh. it's, it's a fun song to play <laughs> well they're both fa both of those songs that he wrote uh, at your request are incredible songs i was blown away i was so blown away and then we I, I got to tell you, Warren and I, when when the record company picked Werewolves as the single, hmm. both Warren and I went, "What? Wow. <laughs> really? <laughs> that? That's the song they want to go with?" You know, uh -huh. we were because we were so in love with, we thought "Tenderness on the Block" like one yeah. of the best things anyone's ever written. They're not. They don't want to do "Tenderness." They don't want to do "Johnny." What? Yeah. Werewolves is it? And they were so right. Yeah. They were so so right, and and we were so wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's like I, I always tell people I don't care who's right as long as someone's right right it exactly. doesn't matter to me. if I'm right that's great but if I'm wrong 
I don't give a shit as long as someone else has got it right. Yeah. And they were so right. And werewolves is still with us to this day and, you know, has been used in so many films and commercials and Knockwood. And I'm so blessed to have been part of it. Yeah, I remember my, maybe my first, I don't know if it was my first introduction. I did probably heard it on the radio, but with uh, an an American werewolf in London was just like the perfect kind of. uh, Yeah, set up for it. Yeah. 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 It was fun. Well, before we let you go, Wadi, I do have to ask our standard question on this podcast. What What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? Oh, oh, personal rock and roll nightmare? Whoa. Yes. Just one? Just one. (laughs) You have to narrow it down a little. (laughs) God, I don't know. That's tough. Um. I don't know. That I, that's a hard one for me. Uh, not not being ready for a song someone calls out on stage, or uh, or being you know being late for a show, not being prepared. Uh-huh. You know, all these kind of things come into mind. Uh, you know, uh, getting to a show and realizing all my clothes that I want ain't there. That's a rock and roll nightmare. <laughs> yeah, for uh, sure. You know, it's, it's funny. I have this bracelet that I still wear. That one night we got to a, a show and. And I call it my jewelry, my little bracelets and stuff like that crap that I wear. And I left my little case in, in the hotel room. I went, oh, no, I don't have my jewelry, my shit. I don't have my stuff. So I went banging on Stevie's door. And one of the girls answered, give me something. I need something to put on my wrist. I need something. Mm-hmm. And uh, they showed me one bracelet. I said, no, that's no good. That's no good. What else? And then Karen, Stevie's incredible assistant, came out with this really cool little belt that had these little holes and it. it was just really neat and i went oh that's great and i wrapped it around my wrist i really dug it she goes okay but you got to give that back because that came from a handmade pair of boots of stevie's that you know in italy this woman made that and i gotta have it back i said okay fine i still have it yeah. <laughs> that's her rock and roll nightmare <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i don't know uh you know not being prepared is my rock and roll nightmare oh, i would well. say Sounds like that's a very rare occurrence, if ever. So uh, thank you, Wadi, for <laughs> being on the show. Always a pleasure. My to pleasure. You. Thanks so much. Take thank care, Stacy. All right, Andy. Take care, you guys. Bye-bye. Right. Instead of me reading from one of my Rock and Roll Nightmares books at the end of the show, I'm giving you a break, <laughs> leaving it to the professional. Uh, here's a little bit of Andy Garrison reading from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 1, which is available on Audible right now. It seems LSD-induced insanity was the downfall of quite a few rockers, not just the aforementioned Peter Green. Pink Floyd's Sid Barrett had more than a momentary lapse of reason when he went off the rails in the late 60s, tossing away a career that would eventually lead to the band's mega-best-selling album, The Dark Side of the Moon, 1973. The guitarist's signature freeform style on the strings, which showcased dissonance, distortion, echo, and controlled feedback, has left a lasting mark on the face of acid rock, but he never got to fully enjoy his legacy. Roger Keith Sid Barrett was born on January 6, 1946, in Cambridge, England, and he died there, too, on July 7, 2006. 
What happened during that dash between the dates on his tombstone are times of glory, tumult, fugue, and sorrow. Sid was an artist, the kind that paints. His music career only lasted for about a decade. In the late 1960s, he was fired from Pink Floyd for his erratic behavior, intense mood swings that went from mania to catatonia, and increasingly bizarre antics on stage. In later years, his contemporaries wondered if their friend suffered from schizophrenia, but back then, mental illness was stigmatized and largely misunderstood. The dark-haired, intensely handsome musician made a couple of solo records, but in 1972, he retreated from the spotlight, essentially becoming the J.D. Salinger of rock. He was reportedly painting pictures and flower gardening in the countryside, while his Pink Floyd bandmates, Roger Waters and David Gilmour, who was Sid's replacement, immortalized him in the song Shine On, You Crazy Diamond, and based their rock opera The Wall on him. The so-called madcap genius died at home at the age of 60 from pancreatic cancer. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time.